if there's someone listening that's like just getting started with with this stuff and wants to get good at this skill set of being able to sleuth different code bases and identify uh, potential bugs or things that could go wrong, do you have any advice for that person more generally of for like how to how to get started? I think just write a lot of contracts and, and read a lot of code. Like there's a ton of resources on Twitter of people writing about different types of exploits like reentrancy um, and, and the likes, and just reading that and getting used to what to look for um, is, is pretty helpful. Like especially like CTFs as well. Like typically CTFs are created um, from actual exploits, so doing a ton of those would be super helpful as well. And and just following people like Sam, like he drops a lot of knowledge in terms of like new exploits and really weird. EVM bugs that that, that occur. Um, so just just like ingesting as much knowledge as possible. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Zero X Beans, a smart contract engineer who worked at Coinbase in the very early days, uh, and who now spends his time doing work across the space as a Solidity engineer. Beans is the creator of the I Am The Optimizer Challenge, which is something we talk through in this episode, but that is, uh, that's something pretty cool that Beans launched earlier this year. It took off pretty fast beyond what Beans' expectations were and saw some of the top devs like uh, Sam Seesun and others uh, taking a crack at it uh, earlier on when it was first announced. So we'll talk through that in the episode. And we also go pretty deep into gas optimization, MEV, and specifically designing for MEV as a DeFi protocol developer and building secure smart contracts, which is, which is something that Beans thinks a lot about. And we, we go not just into like the, uh, the hardcore solidity stuff, we think about security as a whole as well. So this conversation was a lot of fun for myself and for Josh, who also co-hosted this episode. Uh, and you know, look, Beans is a, is a crypto native, right? I think it might be refreshing to hear directly from a crypto native right now, given everything going on in the space. And if you're also a crypto native, right? If you're a Solidity dev just out there hacking and trying to build cool stuff, I think you're gonna like this episode. So I hope you enjoy. Are you a DAO or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 10 years in the future. When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get onto the episode. All right, we are here today with Zero X Beans. Welcome in. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's it's great to have you here. We've followed you on Twitter for some time now. I think you and Josh have chatted about some uh, low-level stuff in the past, so it's cool we get to kind of all do this together. Um, we'll, we'll go into I Am The Optimizer. We'll go into some of your recent work with this auctions project you did. Uh, and we'll talk, a, a lot of, we'll talk about a lot of different things related to the EVM and gas optimization today. But before we do that, the question we ask everybody first when they come on the show is, how did you get involved in, in crypto? Um, yeah, I, I got involved. Well, like I heard about Bitcoin in like 2016. Um, I was in high school, but I didn't think too much of it. Um, I think a couple of friends were like buying fake IDs. I think which is like the classic <laughs> story that a lot of people have. 
Um, when I went into college in my junior year, um, or I guess like my sophomore year, I started like buying Ethereum, buying like all these like altcoins, trying to make some money. Um, it got like pretty, pretty wrecked in, in 2018. Um, but in my junior year, which is like a few months after, or like maybe a year after I got wrecked, um, I decided to apply for Coinbase for, uh, for an internship just to see like if there's any substance in this industry. And thankfully, I got that. And I went to go work at Coinbase for four or five months. Um, and I actually had like a really good time. Like back then, it was, it was like 2019 peak crypto winter. Um, and you, you basically had to be insane to work with crypto or you were super bullish. So I learned a lot from just a lot of people that really cared about the space. And, and I had a great time. Um, but then after that internship was over, um, I wanted to like make sure I actually cared about crypto and like wanted to do this, I guess, for full time after college. Um, so I went to go intern at a few other places, um, one in like cloud database software, um, one in like a real estate company, uh, one in just like B2B SaaS, uh, and one in like consumer. And I was like just trying to trying to see like what I like the best. And after all those ships, I was like, oh shit, crypto is definitely the most exciting. Um, and definitely the most fun. And I, I was young or still am young. So I was like, might as well take the risk and dive into the industry. Nice. And from there, did you just go on and do your own projects? Did you go back and work at Coinbase? Like what, what was, what was like the first real thing you did after the dipping the toes into the other places? Yeah. After I graduated, I went to Coinbase to work full time. Uh, this is mid 2020. Um, so yeah, I worked there time for about a year and a half. Um, I left shortly after the IPO. Um, but in the meantime, I was doing like small side projects with some friends, um, doing the whole like food farms <laughs> during DeFi summer um, and, and, and just all that while I was working. Nice. Yeah. The, the DeFi, I mean, being at Coinbase at DeFi summer was, was probably pretty crazy. Uh, question for you on, on Coinbase and just like the, the exchanges space in general. Um, is there like still a lot of DeFi decentralization ethos at the, at those places. I mean, it's, it's a little different because they have different obligations and responsibilities. But like, is, is, is it your sense that there's still some crypto natives involved in those organizations or is it very much like working for any fang company now? Like, do you have any sense of what it's like currently? Yeah, I mean, when I joined, um, especially when I was an intern, it was like super different. Uh, there wasn't many. I, I think Coinbase at the time when I was an intern was like, Maybe 400 less, which, which seems like a lot, but from where currently it's much smaller. Um, and back then it was super cool. Like everybody was really crypto native. Like everybody there um, kind of breathed crypto and like kind of saw where it was going. Um, and it was super like motivating, like, like making me want to learn more, um, dive more deeper into like different protocols. But as we got bigger and like as we started to IPO, um, I think this just happens in all companies where people are starting to get the sense that you know, Coinbase is going to IPO, so we should join, try to get the strike price uh, way below the actual market value when it IPOs. So we got a, a lot of people joining, um, especially at, I think uh, at the exact level too, where a lot of the product vision kind of moved away from crypto-focused products into more like, how can we increase our share price as much as possible? Um, there was a point in time where... Um, I wanted to join the NFT, like Coinbase NFT platform, because I was like, oh, this is super cool. OpenSea is kind of, you know, fumbling the Coinbase has like all eyes. Um, like everybody's looking at Coinbase NFT and it has a lot of hype around it. So I was super excited to, to work on it, um, help, help watch that. But basically, my manager at the time, who was like not crypto native at all, um, was basically like, no, you're not allowed. Like, you, you can't, you, you can't transfer. I was like, well, that's, that's pretty bullshit. Um, and then Coinbase NFT, Flops, not because of me or anything, but like a lot of the uh, some stories from some friends that were on the Coinbase NFT team, they'd be like managed by PMs and like managers that just kind of didn't know what was going on. Um, I think I'm at, at a point there was more managers than engineers on that team. It was just a bunch of people trying to swing titles around. Um, I don't know if this is a true story, but like apparently there's a person that was like, oh, like with these NFTs, like where where is all this data stored? Is it like on our database? Is it like in AWS? Um, and we're just like, it's, it's on the blockchain. That's kind of where, <laughs> like that's where all the data is for, for all these tokens. And the, and just that alone was like pretty mind-blowing. Um, and that's a big part why I left. 
But recently, um, through like layoffs and just like trying to get back on track, um, I had a chat with uh, Jesse Pollock, who was I think head of protocols or or something, um, just to catch up. And they seem to be really going back to to their roots, but focusing a lot on like getting sharding, helping become uh, scale. They're working with the the EF. Um, I think they're like helping optimism and, and their bedrock and and modular rollups, and they seem to start going back to their to their roots, um, which I'm I'm pretty happy about. So it was like bang for for a good amount of time, but I think it's getting better. That's good. Yeah, they have an opportunity to kind of differentiate themselves right now. Is like the <laughs> one of the only crypto native real CFI things left standing, and I think they're even helping with the Tornado Cash lawsuit stuff too, which is cool. So. Yeah, they're definitely doing some good things. Hopefully, they 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 get back to the roots, like you said, and can can help us all out. Uh, so okay, so you so you leave Coinbase. Was that in DeFi summer? Or was that right after DeFi summer? Like, I'm I'm curious, just like what the first set of projects or project you did you you did was when you were off on your own. I think I left Coinbase officially, um, right as NFTs were starting to kind of catch traction. Like, uh, there's that whole top shot phase. Um, that people were like super hyped about, but it didn't really go into this like monkey JPEG phase uh, for a few months later. Um, and I started catching that beginning of that NFT cycle, and I was like, "Fuck it, I'm diving <laughs> straight into uh, into crypto," and kind of not going to be employed for or officially for that. Nice, yeah. You, you've you've done a lot of work with uh, like sleuthing different NFT projects. Like if you go to your your Twitter account, and if you're listening, you should consider doing this, and just go to your list of threads you've pinned to your profile. There's a lot in there of you like uncovering shady things uh, in specific projects, you finding uh, like small tidbits within code bases that seem like they allow projects to do somewhat suspect things. You've helped people understand social engineering attacks. What, what made you start getting into the security side of things? Were you always security minded when going into the space? Is that something you just you took a liking to uh, when you first started going off on your own? Like where did you develop that interest and skill set? Uh, and being able to sleuth these different projects? I think it was an interest I kind of developed. Uh, and I'm by no means like a security expert. Um, I started really getting into it because like Sam C, uh, Sam C's son tweets like some crazy shit. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to like do this on my own or like try to kind of find like exploits on my own uh, without having to wait for his like Twitter thread. That's kind of where I got the initial motivation to learn. Um, and also like I just wanted to grow my Twitter following. Uh, at the time, like I was like, okay, I'm jobless. Um, I don't have much presence on the internet. What can I do? And it's like, okay, Sam CD uh, tweets, something happens, gets a fuck ton of, of engagement. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> but for maybe like more normie stuff. So NFTs at the time were a uh, big thing. So started diving into a bunch of contracts. Um, and that's kind of how it started. Nice. And when so one thing people sometimes ask us is how to actually go through and like look at a contract from a security like security engineer or auditor's mindset. You're not an auditor, like you said, you're not a security expert, but I think you've done a lot of good work here. Like what's what's your process for and you were just talking earlier today with Josh about like some specific thing with regard to a contract you were looking at. Like what's your process for looking at a contract with security in mind, going through and trying to identify vulnerabilities to, you know, just A, if it's your own contract, prevent a hack, or maybe you're just trying to help the community by open sourcing knowledge or, or helping them prevent hacks in their, their code bases as well. Do you have a process there? Or is it just kind of like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think my process is, or like over the, the years or, um, or like after every project, you kind of learn and like see what a common uh, mistake is. Um, so that's kind of like, let's say someone wants me to review a contract or I'm, I'm writing one, which I've written a lot of mistakes myself. Um, and some of them are just like seared into my memory, uh, which is like the signature malleability bug was one of them that I made a mistake on. Um, but my typical, like, let's say it's a ERC-721 contract. I'll just go through like the typical, uh, I'll do like a high level overview of like what's happening. Like uh, where's the mid function? What is it doing? Um, are the proper modifiers on it? Um, are they using safe mint uh, or regular mint? If they're using safe mint is... Is there reentrancy protection, or is there, um, or is there like a chance of like a reentrancy exploit? I'll just go to like the common uh, footcoms that a lot of developers uh, 
right when they first start, um, which a lot of these like NFT projects, I think they're more novice devs in terms of, I guess, like smart contracts or, or, or EVM. Um, so I'll go through that um, and just see like if I can find any like quick wins. Um, but then I start doing like deeper dives into like certain areas of the contract uh, when things kind of like deviate from the norm. So for this contract, I was um, I was uh, reviewing. They were saving these. They were using the signature for like multiple purposes uh, to for like different uh, people that can mint, and they were saving the signature as like an invalidator to to say that a person minted or not. And I briefly read something um, about Open Zeppelin patching uh, the signature uh, signature malleability bug, or not really a bug. It was something that people were falling into where they're they're it was essentially a patch and that kind of just like uh like while i was reading that signature code i was just like oh shit like the potential that this could be exploitable um and then i'll start digging deeper into it and then i'll see like oh they're using the estsa library from commit hash x which was like a month old version of open zeppelin before it got patched and like okay cool that's a red flag let's see if um they're actually susceptible to the bug because this was before the patch, and then I'll start writing some like forge tests um, just to see if I can like crack it. Uh, but the process is typically um, do a high level review, see if the everything looks in order, if there's any common pitfalls, and then from there start poking holes at like pretty critical parts of the contract, which are like minting, where like, token transferring, and, and so. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a general process of like you have a rough mental checklist, and then you're just doing pattern matching too, where if something looks like it's abnormal, it raises red flags in your mind. Um, if there's someone listening that's like just getting started with with this stuff and wants to get good at this skill set of being able to salute different code bases and identify uh, potential bugs or things that could go wrong, do you have any advice for that person more generally of for like how to how to get started? I think just write a lot of contracts and, and read a lot of code. Like there's a ton of resources on Twitter of people writing about different types of exploits like reentrancy. Um, and, and the likes, and just reading that and getting used to what to look for um, is is pretty helpful. Like especially like CTFs as well. Like typically CTFs are created um, from actual exploits, so doing a ton of those would be super helpful as well. And and just following people like Sam, like he drops a lot of knowledge in terms of like new exploits and really weird EVM bugs that 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 occur. Um, so just just like ingesting as much knowledge as possible. Right. And how about things that aren't even at the contract level? Like, have you seen things out there in the wild that are either suspect or prone to errors that are maybe in like front ends or more on the social layer? Like, can you speak to anything related to that? Uh, um, yeah, there's actually a lot. Um, and this all typically relates to people trying to prevent botting. Uh, like, you'll see a lot of mints, like like Tubby Cats, for example. It was just like, you would see bots mint like 400 at a time and flip them immediately for a profit. So a lot of uh, projects are trying to like prevent that, and and they do that by you know like signing messages and be like proving that this minter is on the allow list, um, and if so, then allow the mint and invalidate all their signatures. Um, and they focus so heavy on the contract side that uh, typically on the client side they, they don't put as much work into. So there's one project called Wizards um, that basically had the pretty solid like uh, security on the contract side, but um, so what the contract was doing was taking a signature um, and basically verified that the signature was valid and could be used by the minter. Um, but the way you obtain the signature is that a server on the client side would sign an address um, and then pass that address in, into the transaction to verify that like this is a minter. But the problem is they left the the endpoint of signing ad- signing addresses like completely open. Like it was there's no authorization on it, so anybody could just kind of uh, snip all the routes, see that there was a route called sign endpoint, um, and just pass in an arbitrary address and see if it would return uh, a 200 with the proper signature, and, and it would. So that was like a big one. I was like, oh shit. And, and of course, it, it did get botted um, because a lot of people are, are looking up for that, that type of stuff. Um, but I think that was like the most recent one, uh, which, was a, which was a couple months ago. Makes sense. Now, I think the lesson is just to, to yeah, you, you can write a perfect contract but like people are going to have to interact with the thing right and if if you're going to literally spend zero time on security or on your client side 
like you could just basically nullify all the work you did on the contract by you know opening up some other attack vector somewhere else, right? It's interesting you say that the people are doing these things to try to prevent botting. I guess I wouldn't have expected that. I guess it, it makes sense, but sometimes I guess you know focusing too hard on on like preventing a certain thing can open up other holes, which I think is pretty interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let, let, let's shift gears a little bit back to like the hardcore EVM stuff. You've got this challenge out there. This I am the optimizer challenge. Josh is J- Josh is so interested in this thing. Josh is like obsessed with this thing, right? Because he's seen some cool stuff happen. Can you just walk our listeners through like what the I am the optimizer challenge is? If for those that haven't heard about it, uh, and like we'll, we'll we'll ask some follow up questions from there. The I am the optimizer challenge is basically just a king of the hill to to see who can create the the smallest contract um, and most efficient contract to solve a problem, and. This was actually like inspired by um, an NFT. Like it was released like a year or two ago by by someone at Baker, I think. Um, and it was called "I Am the Chad" or "I'm the Gas Chad" or something. And the whole game was if you wasted more gas minting this NFT, uh, you got to mint it and w- and it would burn the previous holder's NFT. So it basically to see who could waste as much money as possible. And I was like, oh, that, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, it's like this whole status thing that you know people like. I was like, what if we just did this, but had more of a game around it? Um, and developers are traditionally the ones that are willing to try things, try new things out first. Um, and they're the most likely type of people that will tell you that they are smarter than you. So, so it was like this great thing to, you know, like show off like, oh, I, I beat Sam C or something. So that's kind of where the initial ideation of the, of the challenge came from was, can we make a challenge that would basically showcase who was the quote unquote, like, better developer or better developer at this game um, and have like an accolade that we could give them um, while simultaneously burning the accolade that the previous person had. And who who are some notable people that have have done well, that have become the king of the hill? Is it is it some of the bigger names that have gotten involved? Like, is like T11's up there or is it, is it mostly people you hadn't heard of before that, that got involved and started playing around? A lot, like yeah, I was pretty surprised at the amount of people that were playing it. Um, I guess like first the challenge is you need to create a contract that solves um, the traditional computer science problem called threesome. But we can go into like how, like why threesome was a great problem later. Um, but essentially that was the pro- that was the problem you had to solve and create a contract that would do that better. Um, but it used pseudo randomness that people could like basically exploit um, and uh, like have a higher score, which is like a lower score in, ter- in terms of gas used and, and bytecode size. And in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to release this. I know there's a hole, uh, but it's still going to be fun anyways. And I was hoping for like one or two or three honest submissions uh, from like regular people. But like immediately as, as soon as I launched the contract, uh, Riley uh, Holterhouse, I think, Paradigm was like, oh, I just, I just took it from you. And I was like, did you do the exploit or did you play the honest game? And he's like, oh, I did the exploit. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like I literally submitted the contract and apparently he was like monitoring it. Like he saw a new contract deploy and he actually took the like optimizer NFT before I even tweeted about it because he was like monitoring the chain. And I was like, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like before I could even tweet about it, it was already like it was already broken. And uh, and that was super funny. Um, but then from there, uh, Sam C was, was playing it, which was wild to see. Um, and then a lot of uh, Noah Citron from Citron, I think, from ACNZ was playing it. Um, a lot of people from the EF were playing it. Um, and it was crazy, cra- pretty crazy to see like all these like really big brain devs uh, playing this game. Um, and I kind, of felt, I kind of felt bad. I was like, I'm wasting a lot of brain power nerd sniping very valuable devs. Um, and they're just trying to beat each other for this NFT. So yeah, a ton of people that I wouldn't have expected uh, were playing it and spending a lot of time on it. Um, I was expecting the game to last maybe the weekend. Like after the weekend, people are going to be bored. Uh, where an optimal solution would be found. But like two months later, A16Z releases like the optimal solution, which um, which they created a block producer for to take this crown from Sam C. And I was like, kind of this like A16Z versus Paradigm thing maybe, but uh, it was like just insane to see like just the longevity of the game. Yeah, you sparked a, a, a VC on VC battle, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, Josh, you said you, you were talking to me off air beforehand that there were some things you wanted to ask. Beans about here. What 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 were you uh 
What were you referring to? Uh, yeah, I mean, de- definitely the dive the optimizer challenge. I mean, like by, by the time I heard about it, you know, it was already like so many like big players were, were like knees deep in it. I was like, okay, maybe it's a little too late. Right. But I, I'm actually taking a look at, um, at, uh, Citron's like solution here. And it's like 10 op codes and it's like gas price and Coinbase. And all. I mean, it's, it, it's phenomenal, man. It's, it's really, really cool. Um, but yeah, so in terms of, I guess some more general stuff. Um, so I know, I know you mentioned before that like, you're not like super, super deep in the MEV. Right. But I think like kind of this mentality that, that, um, that you tend to take on like these smart contracts and how, you know, basically how like people are expected to interact with these contracts, you can see some kinds of MEV more as like an exploit, whereas like some is, is sort of a byproduct, right? Like there's, there's productive MEV and then there's harmful MEV. Right. So maybe can, can you, uh, kind of like touch on like where, like what, what do you consider like productive and like healthy MEV? And then what do you consider more harmful and um, how can people kind of like design for that? Yeah, I think, I think a take a lot of people have or mostly non-devs have about MEV is like, oh, all MEV is, is bad because it can fuck people's prices. Um, that's not necessarily true. Uh, there's a lot of MEV that's, like you said, very good. Um, that is required for a lot of protocols to work, um, especially in the, in like the lending protocols like Compound or Aave, like you really need uh, profit-driven uh, people to kind of keep those protocols working. Uh, I remember like in 2020 or something, or when, I forget if it was Aave or Compound, they actually had a button on the front end that you could click to like liquidate people. Um, and you could tell like Compound needed people to liquidate or else the, 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 the protocol would have bad debt. So, so in cases like that where you need uh, efficient searchers, to make products, uh, make a protocol work, like I would say that's that's good MEV when MEV is uh, part of the design process. Um, and I think bad MEV, um, it's really hard to say like that MEV is bad because crypto is so P to PVP um, and so many people are, are, are profit driven where it's hard to like shun people for, you know, finding a profitable strategy. Um, so from like a profit maxi um, standpoint, like I wouldn't necessarily say it's harmful because, you know, like that's just your way of, you know, interacting with EVM. And you could argue that you're making the markets more efficient. Um, but on the other side of people actually getting wrecked and sandwiched and front run, it's like a terrible experience. Um, I think during the bull run, the gas would be, just be so insanely high, especially during these NFT mints because there's so many searchers trying to like front run mints and dump them immediately on into a, like a collection offer. Um, so it actually harms like the use case for, for normal people that don't know how to code and just want to interact with the chain normally. They'll congest it, um, they'll spike up the fees, and you'll most likely just get a terrible price um, when trading or, or, or doing anything. So I think in that case, it's pretty harmful uh, to the adoption of blockchain almost. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, on the topic of things like sandwiching, right, there is sort of the, the argument in favor that um, you know, basically says that if you're setting high slippage, you know, on a coin, then you're kind of implying that, you know, you're willing to, to kind of like take that loss. Right. And I mean, it's, it's, it's more difficult to make, right. Whenever you're trying to, you know, flip shit coins. Right. And it's like, it's not very liquid. And you know, that there's, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of problems that can go into that, but, um, yeah, I think definitely this, this sort of block space problem is something that's, that's become pretty apparent, right. Just how, you know, these gas wars will just, like come and go sometimes, right? And it just makes a chain unusable, right? And and I mean, different chains handle this in different ways, right? Like you know, Ethereum, the the gas gas prices like spike super high, uh, Solana goes offline, right? Um, which I mean, you know, to 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 a degree, right? To the average person, Ethereum kind of did go offline, right? Obviously, it's the the chain is sound. That's not exactly what I'm implying, just kind of a metaphor. But it's like you know, for, for average people, like for that period of time, it was just, it was just not usable. Right. And I remember like coming into the crypto space. I mean, I was, um, I guess around 2021, I think it was that I was just getting into all of this. Right. And I was trying to do like little ETH global hackathons, you know, you have to stake like, I think like 20 bucks worth of ETH, right. Something like super cheap. Um, and, and all the time, right. There was, there was some kind of like crazy gas war or something going on. And I ended up paying like $40 in, in gas fees to stake my $20 to then get the $20 back and pay another like, you know, another 40 to, to get it back out. I mean, it was, it, it was rough. Right. So I definitely agree that like, it does make it a bit more inaccessible at the moment. And, and I wonder like, 
I don't, I don't want to go too much off on a tangent here, right? But I wonder, like, I mean, what's what's the solution here, right? Because as as a chain scales, as it can handle more volume, then I mean, I imagine bots would just push more volume through, right? If it's cheaper to interact, then bots are going to interact a lot more often. You see this on Polygon, right? It's it's cheap to interact, but because of that, you make one transaction and you have coins in your wallet, right? Because bots just don't care, right? So do you, do you think there's like kind of a balance there? Is there like an equilibrium or is this just kind of going to be a byproduct? That is a good question. Um, I mean, first, MEV was initially just minor extractable value where like miners are validated with Organized, reorganized transaction based, um, just uh, if it was profitable. But now MEV has become this like all encompassing term of just anybody that makes money through a bot essentially is now a searcher or has done MEV. So it's like, it's really hard to be to say, like, how do you solve MEV? Because MEV is just so broad now. Like, oh, for people that are doing like fat finger arbitrage between OpenSea, like somebody lists an ape at 0.9 ETH by accident. Uh, if, a, if a bot um, sees that, uh, buys the ape and sells it directly into like a pseudo swap pool. That MEV, um, in current definitions, yes, but is it harmful for the chain? Like, not really. Um, but I think, I think the general like what we're talking about is actually just like uh, like predatory ones where, where it's like purposely sandwiching or front running uh, transactions from users uh, by looking at all transactions in the mempool. Um, it's hard to say like what would solve it. I think Arbitrum has a take where they don't like uh, MEV and they don't like like these services like Flashbots, which which is like front running of the service. Um, and their solution is just not to have not to let transactions be ordered because they don't have a sequencer. I, I didn't look too far into that, but I know Arbitrum has a very harsh stance on like they don't want this on their chain, so they do whatever they can to remove it. Um, and then protocols are starting to look into. Basically, MEVing their own protocols where, let's say for Uniswap, Uniswap could like run a bot um, to, to front run their own users. Um, and because, and in the protocol, they can be like, oh, if it's from this address, which is our bot, don't apply the 2% fee. Um, and now I have a 2% leeway of winning the gas option to actually always win. And then with that profit I make, you could either kick it back to users or use it for protocol development. Um, and that's like one strategy of, Heard people talk about another one is like, what if Uniswap just actually sold uh, their uh, sold MEVable transaction where like Uniswap can actually host their own uh, MEV auctions where miners or I mean, where searchers now bid to Uniswap. So rather than the bid going to my or validators, they go to Uniswap. I um, mean, Uniswap will choose which searcher gets to have this profitable um, transaction. And that poses like a bunch of other problems of just like, oh, less. Money's not going to validators. Is that like centralized the chain? Everybody has now like private relays. Um, this is something definitely people are thinking about. Uh, I don't necessarily have a great answer to, but yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's honestly fascinating. I'm interested to see how it's going to play out as well. Um, on the topic of mechanism design, you put together this this uh, implementation for I think it was a blind victory auction. Correct me if I got the naming wrong, but you built this during DevCon. Uh, and it seemed very interesting. I read through the thread. I looked at the contract and everything. I would love for you to explain it for our audience. Like, what is a blind victory auction, and uh, what was that project, and why is it potentially interesting? Yeah. Um, wait. Before that, I want to like quickly go back. Like, something just popped in my head about like harmful MEV. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, so I think the most recent thing that me and my friend, my friend, um, uh, made, or like, uh, I have a friend. His name is Pedro or Rashpi on on Twitter. We do like basically everything together. Uh, and we got a tip off that Tonic uh, or this decentralized exchange on Near was having a liquidity incentive program. And, you know, typically liquidity incentive programs are, you know, to bring in users, help the protocol, like, you know, like bring in more users um, and just like grow liquidity. Uh, but typically what happens is liquidity will just get drained from from searchers. Um, so that that's something I would consider bad MEV uh, because... It's doing the exact opposite of what the liquidity incentive program is supposed to do. So, so for example, like they had a 50k liquidity incentive program for anybody that would provide liquidity um, for stablecoins within a certain range. It's like if you provided USDC and USDT, uh, or near stablecoin was USDC and USDN. Um, if you provide, provided liquidity between 0.999 cents and 1.0001 dollar, um, and your 
order like stayed on the books, um, i.e. kind of market making, you would get rewards uh, based on how long your liquidity was on the books. Uh, so we kind of had a bot that uh, took USCC, uh, tr traded for USDN, um, and just kind of provided liquidity. And we were kind of market making for um, as long as the incentive program was, was running for. Uh, but then they also said, hey, during this incentive program, we're going to have 0% trades. So trades are completely free. And that opened like a completely, I would say, like predatory strategy where now we could have another bot which would simply wash trade back between USDC and USDN and basically clear out every, everybody's orders. And now we would be the only market maker. And anytime uh, another market maker would try to add liquidity for, let's say, USDN, we would just take USDC and just buy USDN and just completely wipe out that, that sell order. And then we would do, and vice versa, we, we would just be doing that for like weeks. Um, and I think we cleared out, we, we came in kind of late, but we cleared out like 30% of, 30 or 40% of their total liquidity incentive. And, and it was cool for us, but if you really think about it, it's kind of, it's really bad for the protocol, right? Um, so that, that is like bad MEV, but everybody's willing to profit maxi. So it's like, I can always preach, oh, this is really bad. But then when someone's like waves dollars in your face, then it's, then it's a different story. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd almost call that an economic bug, right? At that point, that's just, I mean, that's just exploitable, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. a ton of just like gray area and, and considerations to make when, when thinking about or building with MEV in mind. Totally. Yeah, that, that's honestly fascinating. I think pro, like protocols need to be much more thoughtful about some of these programs they're running. There's, a, there's been a lot of money that's just been thrown out into the air with just kind of a blind hope that it's going to do something. I mean, I understand liquidity is a little more. I mean, the point of providing liquidity and having an incentive for providing liquidity, it's kind of clear what that's doing, but it has led to all kinds of weird, weird things that have happened that probably shouldn't have happened, right? I mean, go back to DeFi summer, you see all kinds of crazy things then. So. Uh, I think people yeah. have realized that some of that's not sustainable, but the whole economic design process here, like there's a lot of experiments that have been run, which I think is good. Not all of, not all of them have worked, obviously. Um, but this is maybe a good lead in again to, to the auctions project. I'd love for you to, to, to touch on that. Yeah. Uh, I guess first credit goes to like Villagey on Twitter um, and Ayush. Um, they're the ones that kind of had the initial inception of wanting to make a, a blind victory auction. Uh, so what a blind victory auction is, is essentially all bidders submit a bid um, unknown to everybody else. And the highest bidder pays what the second highest bidder uh, bidded. So let's say like we all, I bid 10 ETH, uh, Josh bids four, um, and Sam bids six. Uh, I bid the highest, um, I won, so I would only pay six, which was what Sam uh, bidded. And it doesn't necessarily find better price discovery Per se, but I would argue it's a much better mechanic of finding true market price than currently happens in the NFT space or just auctions in general. Like you'll see nouns, for instance, like I know exactly how much everybody bids. So if I just bid the minimum amount above that, I am guaranteed to win. And that can have like unwanted side effects where during like super hot minutes, there, there's a lot of FOMO driven people that are just constantly going to up bid. And you can do like, uh, and, and price discovery is not. It's like FOMO-driven price discovery. And you'll see this a lot where a lot of people bid really high, they'll buy it and then realize they've got a greater full above and that wants to buy it off them. And then now they're just jumping into the market. And now like, you know, <laughs> the auction, I mean, uh, the, the bidder lost money. Like, you know, like this NFT now has like a bad rep because it's worth less now. Um, and also on the flip side, it's like if I know you bid like 40 ETH for a noun, uh, but I was willing to pay 500 ETH, I would just bid 45. and now. Yes, I got it for cheaper, but the auction kind of lost out on all the upside of ETH. If it was a blind auction, um, or if it was like a blind uh, seekers uh, victory auction. So that's kind of like the auction mechanic. Um, and yeah, during ETH Bogota, um, Phil and Ayush were uh, basically thinking like, what, what, what should they make? Because um, I wasn't there at the time. Um, and they were, they were working with a few other people, and they kind of created this mechanic. And then I came in like a few days later, and they told me about it, and I was like, this is really fucking cool. Because um, I was thinking about how do you make a blind auction on chain for probably a few weeks at that point. Like a few people have suggested like maybe you over collateralize bids where let's say like you bid 5 ETH, but you actually send 10. Um, and now everybody sends 10, so it's kind of hidden. But the problem with that is everybody's now capped up to 10 ETH. And I know for a fact if I bid 10 ETH, I'll probably win. How do you like truly make a blind auction? 
Um, and yeah, well, we all work together to, to make a proof of concept um, to hopefully maybe somebody's going to use, like maybe Nouns will use it, but that's what, sorry, what was the question again? I, I think I went on a tangent. No, no, you, you, you answered exactly what I was, what I was looking for, just an overview of the project and why you created it. I think one thing that would be interesting is to hear how you actually implemented the functionality of making it blind. Like what was the actual technical implementation there? Yeah. So it, it's really hard to make like uh, conceal ETH transfers, um, especially since most of these uh, auctions are, are with uh, native ETH. So you see exactly how much ETH is going into the contract from, from what address. And you can roughly gauge like even if multiple addresses were sending into one bid, you'll still see like multiple ETH transfers going to the contract. And you can kind of like roughly tell like, oh, if I just bid above all the ETH, I'll win. Um, so how we did it was there's this opcode um, crate two, which gives you deterministic um, addresses where uh, I could deterministically send or deploy a contract to zero x, I don't know, like four four zero x whatever, mm-hmm. um, and that is kind of like the, the crux of it, where you want all the bits to blend in as regular ETH transfers. So how the auction would work is, let's say we're bidding for a noun. Uh, and you want to bid 40 ETH, the front-end or client would tell you, uh, or when you send the ETH to, to the auction, it doesn't actually go into the auction contract. It goes into a brand, it goes into an EOA. Um, and that EOA was actually predetermined. So the, the, the contract gives you an address to send ETH to, um, which looks like an EOA. But during the bid time, it looks like everybody is just all the bidders, which you could use, you know, uh, anonymous wallets, are just sending ETH to random EOAs. Um, and they're basically indistinguishable from regular ETH transfers. Um, and, you, and you can do things where like, you can also have functionality where you kind of, from Tornado, send to an EOA. Um, and that, even, that can seal the ETH, ETH transfer even more. And then after the bidding phase is over, um, there's a reveal phase. And what the reveal phase does is it actually deploys a contract to these EOAs um, that actually withdraw the ETH. So at reveal time, you'll know what everybody bid because, you know, um, you'll see all these contract deploys, but at that point it's too late because everybody already bid. And then, what when everybody reveals, you know exactly who bid the highest, who bid the lowest, um, and and uh, settle the auction that way. So the, the the whole crux of it is just hiding ETH transfers um, as regular ETH tra- uh, hiding bids as regular ETH transfers up until reveal time. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. That's that's really really cool. What what is how do you derive the salt for that? What well, what's the is that pseudo random or what? Um, I don't quite remember what it is because um, the contract is is contract that withdraws the ETH is just like eight bytes. Um, oh yeah, it, it, there is a salt that the user. So this is kind of like the UX problem. The user has to create their own salt, which could just be like the number one or a hundred or or something unique that they would know and hopefully not forget. Uh, you'd also say, you could save it client side too, or in local storage, or maybe you could even save it in the server because like. You know, there's no reason for the auctioneer to game this. Uh, but yeah, they would have to keep track of a salt. So, um, and then at reveal time, they would reveal the salt and then the contract would get the point to, to, to pull all the ETH. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, for, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, the create in, in the create to opcode, kind of the, the differentiator here, the way that you can set different addresses is with this salt. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's a really cool use of, uh, of cryptography here to solve the problem, right? I think uh, a lot of people in the space that are really smart devs I think for them, like there, there aren't that many places. I guess outside of like cyber, if you're really into like cyber stuff, there aren't many places to like use cryptography, really advanced cryptography throughout the rest of software. At least it seems like. I mean, I'm sure there's some things you can do in security if you work for some larger corporation. Um, but are there any other concepts like that, like within either cryptography or blockchains in general, that are that are really fascinating to you that you wish you had time to either explore more or work on? Like, I'm curious to get to get in your mind here if there's anything that you like. You think is super cool. You like the you like to call out. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of stuff I wish I had time to learn. Uh, like, obviously, zk is the buzzword, and everybody wants to learn zk, and uh, me as well. Like, uh, like I've been super into like just like on chain gaming and like seeing how you can create like fog of wars on chain, um, and like really looking into dark forest. Um, and it's just like fascinating what you can do with zk and like how fast the technology has like evolved. They can like basically prove in the browser now. Um, so that's like one area I wish I hope to have time to dive into. Um, and then I'm not the, uh, I don't know too, too much about crypt- cryptography. Um, so like, I want to just in general, get more into that. I want to look, I want to see how elliptic cryptography actually works. Like 
uh, for the contract I was reading where there was like a signature malleability bug. Like I knew of the bug and why it happened, but I don't quite understand like why two different signatures or like a signature can be malleable and, and pass uh, a signature validation check. Like roughly it's like on the elliptic curve, there's two sides. So you can like mirror the signature onto the other side of the curve. Therefore, it's like still valid. And it's like, okay, that makes sense high level. Um, but I would really like to to know like what the hell is going on um, and all these things. Yeah, Josh, you had a you had pencil and paper six to nine months ago, right? Doing stuff, working stuff out. So maybe that's maybe that's the solution for people. Just you have to you have to just dive in and give yourself a little bit of space to to work on it. I'm I'm getting the story right, Josh. That's the, that's the correct. Yeah. So so uh, the the background on that was the the way that I learned about like how SHA two fifty six actually worked was I, I took like a giant sheet of like graphing paper and like like wrote down all the, all the bits and all the logic gates. It was hell. It was, it was like the worst, like week and a half of my life. But, um, yeah, I don't think that's the most efficient way to learn, especially, especially in ZK stuff, because I mean, like every time you think you're far enough down that rabbit hole, it just goes a little bit further. So I think definitely, um, and I mean, both for you and for anybody else that that's watching, that's looking to dive into ZK as well. Like, I mean, you definitely want to start with, with some higher level stuff, stuff that's like digestible and easy to reason about things like, you know, your DSLs, right? Like Noir, CIRCOM, things like this. Um, but kind of like breaking, breaking through those like layers of abstraction and slowly working your way down the stack, I think is really good, right? Like beyond the DSLs, you have like Rust libraries and beyond this, you have, you know, a lot, a lot of like, um, a lot of like formal mathematical papers that, you know, kind of talk about why these things work, right? I actually even saw the other day, somebody did a ZK snark by hand. Like they, they were actually like writing with, with pencil and paper, these like polynomials, right? I mean, just crazy, crazy stuff, right? But like that's, I mean, that's about as low level as you can get with it, right? I wouldn't recommend starting with that by any means. But I mean, definitely because ZK is just this, it's just this haphazard, not, not haphazard, but just this wild combination of so many different things all together that it's it's really hard to break to the bottom of the stack immediately. But um, yeah, def, definitely worth diving into. It's It's some pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I find like for ZK now, um, like we crypto, or like a lot of people are saying this. I think Gubsheep at Ebota was saying this. It's like we kind of overtook the word ZK, like before it actually meant zero knowledge, where it's like zero knowledge cryptography. And now, uh, because of like, uh, I guess like crypto or Web3, ZK just means like similar to MEV, uh, ZK just means like you just use cryptography to hide or validate some assumption or prove some hidden. Uh, value. It's like, okay, now you're using ZK and it's like pretty funny to see like the progression of how wide terms can get. Yeah, no, terms are always like bastardized in the end. They're used for things that aren't there meant to be used for. But uh, on this topic, right, on this topic of like going deep, learning new things, uh, getting out pieces of paper and writing all the bits out for SHA-256, <laughs> you maniac. Um, Beans, what do you do like personally to level up as a, as a developer? Uh, we ask this question to everybody. We usually get a pretty interesting answer. I'm curious as to, to how you think about this. Yeah, I, th um, I think how I actually like want to get started or like the motivation to learn something is like uh, through memes. Um, like I, it sounds weird, but like hear me out. Um, like I think he, this is like six or seven months ago. Somebody started this gas optimization meme where people just would just write the most ridiculous functions. Uh, that just did absolutely nothing for the sake of like gas optimization. So people would just, you know, like write just the craziest shit. And like a lot of it would be memes. Like the, the code wouldn't even work. It would just like make fun of, I guess, optimizers. And I wanted to contribute to the meme. And I was like, it'd be really funny if I could write Fibonacci in like just opcodes. And at the time, like Hub wasn't that big or like I don't, I don't think Pentagon was or Hub SH, the domain was even like available yet. But I was like, oh, like, I want to contribute to this beam too. Okay, I guess I have to learn how opcode fucking work. Um, and then I wrote Fibonacci in like Solidity Point Four, which actually allows you to write opcodes. I think uh, they got rid of it in, in the later version of Solidity because you just use the assembly block and Yule. But before you could actually write like dupe two and like swap and, and all that stuff. And I spent like six hours just learning how the fuck <laughs> to do this, um, and it was like completely useless for like professional development. Uh, but I learned a lot about the EVM. Um, and similarly for uh, like Huff now, like I want to learn Huff for it. I'm starting to learn Huff um, because the I'm the optimizer challenge was just like I, I, I couldn't compete after like the second, second of the submission. I was like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> um, 
And then I see just these wild solutions of just using like Coinbase as like the push Xerox whatever value. Um, and then creating your own block producer. And now I'm learning about like creating block producers. And, and it all kind of starts from like fun and, and memes. And then I just kind of dive into it because I want to participate. Like eventually I would like to participate in like the, uh, another version of I'm the optimizer. Um, so that's kind of how it starts. Um, and then I don't think Web3 has like a, a great knowledge base yet. Like Stack Overflow for Web3 is not that big. So I then go into like Discord groups of like with friends. Um, like I'll, I'll DM Josh um, and just be like, do you know what the hell this is about? And I feel like a lot of people will actually learn. Because a lot of these devs, like even if you guys don't follow each other, they'll, they'll, they'll at the very least read your message. And if it's like compelling enough, they'll, they'll respond and try to help. Um, so yeah, at this point, I just kind of reach out to just the smartest people I know. Um, I think I wanted a more efficient version of, I don't know, some like JSON encoding uh, for one for an NFT project. And I just asked uh, Vectorize, which he's just really good at, at low-level stuff. And I was like, oh, how do you do this? And like from there, I, w- I would learn a lot. So just like knowledge sharing between, between people is super helpful. Meme-driven learning. I like it. I like that. Uh, no, it has to start with some kind of fun. And I think there's, there's a really valuable social aspect to this too, right? Where it's like, you know, you want to you get involved, right? You want to you play the game too. And I think one thing that I wish I would have understood earlier when learning Solidity or even just like learning like, like JavaScript a long, long time ago, right? I wish I would have just asked people. Because if you're asking a question, as long as it's actually well-formulated, you know, some people have like good guides on how to like how to actually ask questions. There is such a thing as kind of a stupid question when it comes to development questions. It's just true. But if you know how to ask a good question, you know, like people will help you out. And I think I, I wish I would have taken that to heart earlier, uh, because people are helpful. So it's pretty cool. So you learn you you want to learn Huff. What else do you want to learn? Huff zk stuff. Anything else? If you had unlimited time, what would you? What else would you stack in there? Oh yeah, like definitely like just. A lot of ZK stuff. Um, Huff in particular, um, just because like I feel like all the Huff guys are cool, and I want to like partake in the Huff Discord. <laughs> like it, like it's it's different from just like reading Evium.codes and be like, oh, I know what this does, and writing Yule, but like actually contributing to like Huffmate and and uh, just like partaking in that ecosystem just seems really fun. So I would love to learn um, and maybe contribute uh, potentially. Um, I would love to learn Rust. I like. Everybody is trying to pill everybody on like Rust is like this, this the greatest language ever. And there's like, I think George is like a huge proponent of it. And he's the one just trying to get everybody in Rust and like, uh, uh, like contribute to Foundry. So like Rust is something I'd also love to learn. Um, um, I guess like game development as well. Like I've, I've been super into games. Um, and rather than like these smaller like developer games, I, I'd love to learn how to like, Use Unity um, and actually create uh, a more polished game. Uh, that that could be super cool. Maybe do it. Yeah, some kind of on-chain gaming thing. I think would be cool. Um, but no, I think you're you're not alone in wanting to learn some of those things. I would also check out Sway. We were actually just talking about Sway before you got on. When you're setting up your mic, what we were talking about is uh, is Sway and, and uh, how it might be able to target the EVM in the future. Uh, it's interesting. Like it's fuel thing. I mean, they've been chilling it pretty hard, right? We like them. The episode with Nick is actually coming out this week. Nick, we like you. You guys are doing a good job. Uh, but it's it's cool. It's like it's kind of a mix between I think Paul from uh the guy that made Sableer said it's like if if Solidity and Rust had a had a child, it would be Sway. So uh it might be worth checking out too. I've had a good experience messing with it. So I've seen Josh uh tweet a lot about it or shit post about it. Yeah. Yeah, he got he got nerd sniped. He got nerd sniped for sure. Yeah, yeah. It uh it- it started with a nerd snipe and then like it just it just got spicier man it's it's pretty i don't know it's pretty wild seeing it all seeing it all go down i mean definitely um so right now it, it still isn't targeted to evm it's something i've been kind of kind of following pretty closely because i think right now like we need more we need more serious contenders for production ready smart contract languages right like um you know i, I love huff right like I, I i write huff like crazy but like open zeppelin's not going to write huff right like they're just not going to do it um, you know, Viper is really cool, right? But it's just, it's not getting, it's not getting as much traction as I'd really like it to see, right? And just seeing like how much the Sway team like focuses on DevX and, and ergonomics, you know, I, I think it could be a contender, you know, maybe. I, I don't want to speculate too much, but uh, really excited to see how that all goes down. 
I guess, uh, why do you want to see a contender? Like, I, I completely agree, but I'd love to get your thoughts on like why you think we need a a contender against Solidity, and and then yeah. So I mean, like Solidity works, right? Um, it, it does its job, but there's a lot that I think it doesn't do well. Um, and so you know, there, there was obviously a bit of controversy around, um, you know, around like uh, DevCon. There was some talk about like Solidity moving in more of a Rust-like direction, and some people were against it, some people were in favor, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, um, I think Solidity does what it does very well. Whether they decide to go down that Rust route uh, or not, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's mostly good for what it is now, but there's just some things that, um, like, there are things that we didn't know when Solidity was built that, like, we know now and that we should, I think, build into languages and, and be very aware about, right? Things like, you know, forcing developers to handle, mul handle multiple code paths, right? Like, um, the fact that, you know, you, you can still get um, unsafe data from EC Recover. The fact that, um, you know, you can you can have these, like, return bombs and, um, you know, non-failing, like, co uh, calls to external contracts, and you have to, like, do all of this extra boilerplate, and it's not a very, like, like, it works, right? You know, you can do the low-level call and require success, but it just, it, it doesn't, the ergonomics aren't, aren't quite the same as something like Rust. So I'd love to see something that is more Rust-like. And out of all the sort of Rust derivative uh, smart contract DSLs out there, I think I think Sway is definitely one of the more mature ones. Um, so yeah, I, I'd love to see kind of like, um, you know, more Rust-like syntax around some of these things that sort of require handling more code paths. So you go. Solidity, maybe seeing some competition. We'll see. Uh, those debates were 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 spicy at DevCon, by the way, from what I hear. Uh, so yeah, yeah they're, lots, they're lots of smart people thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, no, people get heated. Very well. Anyways, so okay, so we're we're kind of coming up on time here. So I'll ask one of the last questions we we tend to ask people. This this, this is much more theoretical, but you know, right now uh, we're kind of in in a bear market. I guess kind we're we're not kind of in a bear market. Bear market. It is a bear market. Uh, but it's not going to be this way forever, right? We're all building stuff. Uh, we want things to to be useful in the future. What do you hope our industry accomplishes over the, the next decade? Like, if you were to close your eyes and wake up in the early 2030s, what do you hope we've built? It, you, you can answer this question on like the developer side. You can answer it on like the more super high level side of what you hope the industry does. I'd love your take. We ask everyone this question and I, and I want your, your thoughts too. I would love to see a protocol or product um, that has like true PMF that isn't based around pure speculation. Um, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, we do have current protocols, you know, like Uniswap and you can trade assets for assets. I'm like, it's still speculation. I would, I would, I would argue that 95% of anybody trading Uniswap is trying to make money in US dollars. Same with the NFT space of like, oh, we're a community, it's really cool. But, you know, you, you're, I would argue that you're mostly holding the asset or bought it in the first place Maybe for the community, but mostly for you know, speculation and, and number go up. Um, same with a lot of games as well, like Axie and everybody's trying to build like, oh, in Fortnite, if you put it on chain, we could uh, have tradable skins. And I'm like, that also is, you know, speculation. Um, and like a lot of the biggest apps or like a lot of my friends that aren't super into crypto, but like kind of interact with crypto, they, it's usually for, for gambling, like bust a bit or, you know, like, poker or sports betting and like everything relies around speculation and don't get me wrong I, I love it I love speculating it's really fun when number goes up everybody's together but eventually I would like to see uh, something that doesn't need to rely on speculation as a crutch to actually find PMF um, and that's kind of like a, that's like a debate I'm having with myself like can we actually do that um, maybe crypto is really good for financial rails which inherently leads to speculation and we're just really good at that and and that in itself is very valuable and will become a huge, huge industry. Um, but can we actually break out of that? I'm not sure, but I would, I would love to, to see something um, that adds value uh, without relying on speculation. I love that. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think about that a lot too. Um, and I, I hope we can. Again, crypto is the, the PMF has really been speculation uh, if, if there is one. Uh, and you know that, that will always probably be a thing, but hopefully we can expand beyond that. So I love it. Uh, where can people find you online? Like, what's what's the Twitter handle? Uh, I'm zero x underscore beans. Love it. And then are there are there any other projects you have in the works you'd like to point people to? Uh, anything else you'd like to 
to give out as a message to our listeners before we wrap up? Yeah, like uh, we're working on truly like uh, on-chain games, uh, which will be out in the next uh, two or three weeks. Um, we're, we're, yeah, we're working, working with some really smart people. Um, so hopefully it'll be an actual fun on-chain game. Amazing. Well, we're looking forward to that. And we really appreciate you coming on today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you so much for inviting me on this. 